Hey, podcast listeners, Ethan Millard and Alex Curie here from the Nightside Project podcast here at KSL Podcast. Get into Zen Headlines with us on the Nightside Project. Use hashtag Zen Headlines on social media to share stories that make you think, make you smile, spread love, spread joy, all those things. We'll share them on the Nightside Project podcast. One of the most popular podcasts ever. Nightside is a KSL podcast. Subscribe for free anywhere you listen to podcasts. Hi, this is Scott Trout, CEO of the domestic litigation firm Cordell & Cordell. There are many life changes that can happen after divorce that make it difficult or impossible to uphold requirements of your divorce decree. The orders issued in a divorce are based on the facts presented at that time, but the circumstances used in issuing those orders can obviously change. If you feel a modification to your court orders might be necessary, Talk to us at Cordell and Cordell. Contact CordellCordell.com, 1065 East Hillsdale Boulevard, Suite 310, Foster City, California, 94404. Welcome to Innovation and Leadership. I'm Jess Larson. Today on the show, we've got Tom Shea. We went into this mission knowing that we were going to be defensive for five days. Most of my guys just about lost, lost their minds thinking that we're going to be in one position for five days. They're like, we don't know how to do that. Did you know how to do that? I had to convince them that it was going to be okay. If you didn't listen to episode one, please go back, hear about his consulting firm and, you know, all these clients from private equity to manufacturing to healthcare and all over that they've helped. Um, in the first episode, Tom, we talked a lot about leadership and, and I really loved where we ended with the, uh, the idea of what can I do now, kind of thinking of overwhelming situations in a two-minute increment and uh, taking charge of those next two minutes, right? Um, mm-hmm. For this episode, I'd really love to talk about innovation and creativity and, you know, um, the, the little bit of time I've been able to spend with, with folks from your community in the last five, six years, the, the comment, be Gumby, you know, be adaptable is one I heard around a lot. Um, can you talk about, um, in your experience, uh, this this principle of innovation, this principle of adapt and overcome or being Gumby, um, you know, we could even j- take the same story we just talked about in the last episode, or if there's another downrange story that you can talk about, you had a plan, then real life happened, and you had to adapt on the fly and losing wasn't an option. Mm-hmm. Well, there's six questions there. Which one okay. do you want to tackle? Let's do this. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Can, you, can, you, can you tell us a, a downrange story of Stuff didn't have to go, didn't code according to plan, and you had to innovate on the spot. Uh, well, I would have to start with another conversation uh, because I think it's relative to or relevant to talk about innovation or how I define innovation. Sure. Uh, for us and for me specifically, innovation is disruption. And only through disruption can you create an innovative, innovative concept, product, way of doing something, something. That's what people call innovative. And through the process of disruption, disruption is the term in the civilian community. In the SEAL community, it's called failure. So going to the SEAL idea, uh, in the SEAL community, everything's designed around failure so that you can see what works and what doesn't work. And in training as a SEAL, all training is done this way. Every part of training, 
is pushed until it doesn't work. And at the moment you find out when things don't work is where you can then create innovative ideas. And case in point, even in training, like if you take what we do, we, we break things down into obviously land, air, and sea. Our land warfare training, every time you go out, it has to have failure built into it. So you have your plan, and you spend a lot of time planning details down to the nth degree. And what I think is funny now looking back at that experience, the longer that you're a SEAL, the more you realize the plan ain't going to make it very long because something that you didn't account for is going to happen. And so in training, now back to training, you're, you put details into training, you plan it out, and you practice it and rehearse it, and then you go out and try to execute it. The training cadre is designed to check to see how you're functioning, and if it's functioning well, they break it. If it's not functioning well, they'll, they'll just keep it letting going bad because people only learn when things are not working out. And that's when innovation and learning happens is when things don't go the way they're supposed to go. And so go back to the theme of disruptive things cause innovation. And what we realize in the SEAL community is through the process of massive failure, your ability to bounce back and be Gumby, like you said, is really the key. So case in point, we're out in you know Southern California doing land warfare. Everything's going well. We're in the middle of hitting the target. And from my leadership point of view, I'm like, gosh, man, everything is working out. So the, the lead cadre. Or this this lead, is on a training op? Training saying? mission. Yep. Yeah. Because innovation happens only in training. It rarely happens in executing. Mm. And that's my theory. Uh, because when you have. Uh, let me talk about this and, and if we want to talk about why that's the case. So we're out there. Everything's going well. Lead instructor comes over and he goes, Tom, you're dead. I'm like, what would I do? He goes, you didn't do anything. I just want to see what your guys do without you. So I had to lay on the ground, non-responsive. And then they things went really well without me being there. And uh, it came down to the point where a couple guys started making some bad decisions because of something that they weren't paying attention to that I usually had to pay attention to. And so we, we survived that. Obviously we all lived because it was training. We get back into the debrief. And as the guys were explaining what they were going through, they're like, man, you know what? I realized I wasn't paying attention during the brief, so I didn't realize certain things had to happen in sequence. And without Tom there, the sequence didn't happen as easily. And so what we learned and that we now created an innovative process is every position needs you know, a secondary and a, a tertiary person able to do it. So if I'm the primary leader, somebody, in case I died, has to immediately be able to take up my position. 
and do all the things that I was supposed to do. And that became very innovative for us is we're able to function without leadership. It's just a position of responsibilities. And it broke the paradigm of what we thought leaders were and how that shows up in, in actual combat is no matter what happens, there's a massive adaptability of a SEAL platoon because they've gone through these problems so many hundreds of times that, okay, he's dead. I regret that. That's bad. I'll deal with that later. We just got stuff to do now that everybody knows how to do. There may be a two-second interval of people trying to figure out who's down and what they need to do, but immediately they re react and get back on the track. And most organizations don't allow that to happen, which I thought was funny. You know, it, it seems like it must be such a benefit to have that level of creative thinking repetitively forced on you before you're in trouble. It seems like that's got to be such a benefit when you actually are downrange that, that people have a habit of coming up with creative answers to the situation they're in. Yeah, I, I, it's a benefit. It's also the curse. And that's why so few people want to stay in the SEAL community because most people want to have the impression that they're winning and doing well. And in the SEAL community, you never feel that way. And it's a tough, it's a tough crisis to, to give SEALs is the no-win uh, feeling all the time. Who cares if you're going to win? Go do what you're supposed to do. I'm the last guy. Keep doing what you're supposed to do. And uh, it's, it's a tough mindset to have. That's why the attrition is so massive. It's because of that. There's no, there's no easy solution. There's just do simple things. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, in the last episode, you, you had such a great story. Um, do, you, do you have any other downrange stories of doing simple things ends up working in the end? Oh, it's all of them are that way. Uh, the, so the story I told in the first episode, if you will, uh, was at the three month mark of a six month deployment. Uh, and oddly, you know, a couple years later, I was awarded the silver star. I call it the not dying award. <laughs> and, uh, but one of the missions in the, the third mission in the first four weeks we were there, was I think the the most overwhelming mission that I had ever encountered ever. We had uh, been tasked to be a part of a big collective special forces effort to take over the capital of Helmand Province, which was a little town called Marja. And talking about processing things very simple, simply and linearly. And forcing yourself to think that uh, even in the planning of that mission, there was no linearity to it. And then when we came into the cycle of planning, we're like, hey, let's just keep it very simple. Let's not make, <coughs> excuse me, let's not make, sorry about that. Let's not make, uh, <coughs> sorry. Don't go dying on me now. No, I'm not dying. Just swallowed something. Let's not make it so complicated that nobody can figure it out. 
So we kept everybody. We had it was the biggest special forces mission that I'd ever heard about. 200 SF and SEALs on the ground. We all landed at a, within a minute and a half. Uh, six helos. Seems complicated, but it was so basic. And as long as that basic mantra is available, people can execute wonderfully. If it's advanced, nobody can figure anything out. So we landed, took over a, a compound. And so I, I'll step to the side a second. SEALs are an offensive unit. We went into this mission knowing that we are going to be defensive for five days. Most of my guys just about lost lost their minds thinking that we're going to be in one position for five days. They're like, we don't know how to do that. Did you know how to do that? I had to convince them that it was going to be okay because their mindset was massive movement, quick, athletic, fast, rapid, get in and out before anybody sees you. And then we had to go into that with a defensive outlook and how we overcame that is we're just going to simply do basic military soldiering things. Set up a sniper position, set up a defensive perimeter, and maintain it, which was great in theory. And we hit the ground at around 4.30 in the morning, immediately took over our compound. Within the compound, we're already shooting people. And guys were okay with that. Until it got calm, until there was no firefight, and we had to stay in one position. And they couldn't figure that out because that's not how we had trained. And all I had to keep doing is going back to everybody and engaging them and, hey, you need to go do this. Oh, man, I'm not a janitor. Hey, go clean that up. Build that rock wall back up put sandbags together, build the position, because that's not how we train. So having them figure that out, again, from my leadership point of view, they had to figure out the simple things again. And I had to only give them simple tasks to do. And so that was at the end of day one, we had already ran out of ammo. And that night, we had to be resupplied. And the reason why I say that is because we ran out of food, water, and ammo every day for five days. <laughs> and we didn't get sleep until day three. And as you're thinking about that, you're like, oh, that's cool. There, nobody is actually trained to do that very well. Had we all not been through Hell Week, we will probably not have survived it. And Hell Week is just a six-day iteration of no sleep that is in BUDS training. And so we relied on that past experience, and we applied it in the moment that we needed it to be applied. And I call that innovation, using experiences that you've had prior and applying them when they're needed. Yeah. And I could go on, but the, it was it was just a series of over one. We shot five thousand fifty cal rounds. Holy cow! Uh, it was out of control. Yeah. Well, um, I, I'd love you know I know we've got some time left. I'd love to hear um, 
you know, th thinking of thinking of a career, I'd love to hear, you know, we've, we've heard a couple of great stories so far. I'd love to hear one more of just one of the most impactful experiences from your deployments. Uh, do you want it to be at a deployment one or a business one? Something downrange, something that yeah, okay. something yeah. that everybody else maybe hasn't been able to be through. Yeah, uh, the most impactful thing that I, oh man, that's or a one tough of one. them. It doesn't have to be the uh, most. Something that had a lasting impact, or something that was. Um, yeah, the the biggest lasting impact that has still affected me today is the what I call uh, emotional equivalent uh, or emotional mastery or that big term that everybody is is trying to grope with in today's you know space is emotionally it's very difficult for human beings to process long-term combat and what long-term combat is, Thorough exhaustion, seeing your buddies get shot, seeing you know death around you all the time, and how you process that has been an interesting impact on me, both personally in my family and in business, is having a deep sensitivity to how people process their environment emotionally. And in, 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 in combat, it's very difficult to process that and how I had to deal with that for my team as a leader was be able to be available and listen to what the guys needed and what I thought they needed and what they actually needed was quite different. Most people when they're process processing things emotionally don't need a soft hand. They need attention. They don't need you to understand what they're going through. They don't, obviously don't, yelling at somebody is not an effective way to do anything. But, you know, uh, and what I mean by that is what I found out what my guys needed is they always had like a demand or a request for something. And I always thought their requests were odd at first, but they wanted to be able to talk about something that was not related to combat. They didn't want to talk about their experience of killing or seeing death because everybody had it. So the SEALs don't necessarily talk about it to each other because they all experienced it. But what they want to talk about is the th are the things that they're not able to deal with well that are usually back home. And I thought that funny. And what I mean by that is the reason why I think my platoon was really well, did really well in combat, is they were emotionally not hung up on shit back at home because their wives or girlfriends were pretty tough. And what I see in the business space is that relationship area if it's not handled well, emotionally, the operator or the CEO is much less available to being successful. And the quickest way to kill a company is have the CEO get divorced. Mm. The quickest way to kill somebody in your company 
is allow the relationships at home to go south. So I spent a lot of time listening to what the guys were dealing with back home. It's interesting. Again, you wouldn't something. think that. I, I wouldn't have thought it. I'm like, I don't want to talk about your girlfriend, but that's the only <laughs> thing they were interested in. Okay, let's talk. Yeah. Um, after doing that multiple times, what kind of things did you find? What kind of discoveries did you make about the way you listen or what you make comments about versus what you just say, uh-huh, or tell me more? Or how did you feel like you got better at that the more you did it? Mm, good question. Uh, I don't think, uh, I think I, what I call active listening is when you are actually committed to hearing what the other person has to say, even if they just killed a dog, you got to be able to hear that and not make them, you know, sound like an idiot for having told you, or, you know, Hey, my girlfriend's cheating on me. Good. Let's, let's talk about it. Why, you know, am I less of a person for that? No, I just, let's talk it all the way out. So what I found was more valuable is let the person talk it out completely without making it right or wrong. And it's hard not to do that. Yeah. How do you, what kind of things do you tell yourself or, or how do you keep from, how do you keep from being judgmental about a situation that you're listening to? I, I try not to. Uh, so I, Obviously, you're always looking at things through the lenses of right and wrong, but I always look to things that you can actually pick out that can be executed on. So as they're telling you something that's emotionally taxing on them, I always listen for what they're missing that they can take action on. Like find something, hey, have you called her? Well, you know, I know you need to get on the phone. Emotional, emotional problems are when people are not in action. They don't know what to do. So I think the greatest thing you can do as a leader is listen for the things that they're not doing that would impact them best and then support them on taking action on the, and they're mostly difficult things to do. Like call your wife. I know you're not interested in her issues. Call her. Ah, damn. Caller. That's action. Because, you know, and the deal is once you take action, things resolve themselves. How, how could you, in a situation like that, how do you influence them to be their best version of themselves getting on that phone? Do you, would you talk about that at all? Or, or is there any way that you approached them that you think would increase the probability of the best version of themselves calling their girlfriend or their wife? I don't know if there is a best version. I think there's just take action. Like they, like what's the best sales pitch that you can have? How about just get on the phone? Well, I guess, I guess what I'm getting back to is how much I liked you said being committed to them feeling heard or however you said it about being committed to listening all the way. I think uh, there's a lot of us who um, someone is physically present while someone else is talking but I don't think they're getting the level of listening you were just talking about. And I can see just you saying that. I mean, it's it makes so much sense why that would have such an effect of somebody going, man, Tom must actually, Tom must actually give a crap about me. Yeah, well, I, no, I, I don't. I, so this is my judgmental thing. I don't know if there's a best version of yourself other than you authentically being available in the moments that you have. 
and and you probably saw this in sure, your line that, of work. Fine. Sometimes you're like, ah, oh, man, I, all I can do is show up. Well, I don't have all the information. How about just show up and be present as long as you possibly can? You know, get on the phone with somebody and authentically listen to what the heck is going on. I think that, yeah. you know, it might have been a semantic thing, but I think that yeah, might yeah. be what yeah. I was getting at is, um, you know, everybody's had a boss who says, how think, how are things going? But <laughs> I think plenty of us have had a boss ask that who wasn't authentically present when they asked. And mm -hmm. so we don't answer. We're like, things are fine, boss, you know, but that, you know, if you get the sense that somebody is authentically present and they actually want to hear that answer, I mean, what a chance for like connection, like how much more willing am I to go the extra mile for that guy who is authentically present with me, right? Yeah, I th you know, if you're going to use the semantic side of it, uh, the best version of you is the authentic you. And it's sometimes it's stumbling. Greatest thing you can have, and I, I you know, I'm a father of three kids and obviously st you know, still married, which is rough all the time, every day. <laughs> and, uh, but the, and it feels like a, a series of stumbles where like, God, I totally screwed that up and I'm not going to leave. I'm going to keep coming back to the table, even though the, the times at the table may seem difficult. And if that is real, and I, I, I know that in business or in, you know, in relationships or even in the teams, the guys who were real, you because most team guys are only real in combat. They're just, they're a hundred percent available to whatever's going on, the ups and downs. Nobody gets down on each other and everybody makes mistakes all the time. And th that creates a real environment. And uh, obviously in business, that's called culture and, and, and the teams is just called the teams the most valuable thing that you can have is that culture of I can be myself here. I'm going to get jacked up if I'm screwed up, but I can, I can learn and adapt. And I, I only eventually I'm just going to be myself. And that is rare. And I think the teams are one of the only environments that I see that being a hundred percent available interesting to see what they accomplish by creating an environment like that though yeah no, nothing can everything can be accomplished because you never know the solution when you start yeah there's like you know in, in vc and private equity you're you're you're, you're going towards a, a predetermined solution in the teams the outcome is never known you commit prior to having an outcome being determined and it's a, it's a rare environment. So in the teams, like in combat, you're committed before you can even shape the target. And I, you know, I wish in business people would commit quicker before there was a predictability to it. <laughs> you know, um, maybe to finish off here, I'd love to just touch on one last subject. You talked about this kind of humbling of yourself to say like, yeah, crap, I screwed that up. I got to go fix that. Um, can you, can you talk about that for a minute of just um, owning it and just, you know, 
even even when it's uh even when it's uncomfortable like you, you know having that humility to go do what you think you should do instead of you know probably the more comfortable thing of not going back and addressing it uh yeah ownership and uh being humbled uh i, I so I, I I don't think humble yourself to something is the appropriate terminology. Be willing to be humbled is uniquely different. Mm. And be willing to be humbled, which means be willing to own the fact that you made 100 mistakes and come forward and go, hey, they, they weren't yours, they were mine, and this is what I'm going to do to overcome them. Can we get back in the conversation? And I, you know, in the teams, you're always humbled. If you think you're really good at something, you know, case in point, I, I just think it's funny. Uh, most team guys are very athletic, and then there are guys in the teams that are extremely athletic. And I, w I was constantly humbled physically in the teams, even though I was good. There was a, I, I could, you know, you're going out and doing a workout with somebody and, you know, one of the biggest differentiators in strength is a pull-up. And when I was pretty good, I could do about 38 without stopping. There was a guy that I put through training when I was an instructor that did 100 without getting off the bar. That's, it, it humbles you to see somebody do something so far above your skill set and not make them weird or wrong for it. So what happens when you're willing to be humbled is you're willing to go back to the table and learn and train to be better. And that's also the conversation of ownership is, wow, I made that mistake. I get it. And then going back to the table and innovating and creating new learning curve and then learning that new thing and applying it. That is really the true mark of innovation is the ability to be humbled, which means the ability to make mistakes and then overcoming those exact mistakes and making them better. I love it. I think that's a great place to end. I think any of us who can do more of that in our lives are going to have better family, better business, better everything. Yep. Well, uh, appreciate all the time you spent with us here. Um, uh, for people who want to connect with you or, or come hire your company to come talk to their executives, where, where's the best place for people to find you? Uh, well, we're all over social media, either on LinkedIn under Tom Shea or in, uh, on Facebook, which is a weird environment, as uh, Tom Shea as well, T-H-O-M-S-H-E-A. And the on uh, the best way to connect with us online is t h o m s h a s h e a dot com, and that'll bring you to our website. And we have a myriad of, of things that are either direct impact, where we train you exclusively, or self guided training that creates the paradigm of of learning in your life. Well, and we didn't even have time to talk about your best-selling book can you can you tell everybody the name of the book yeah and is amazon the best place to find it or yeah amazon's uh, is the best i think and uh not to detract from other places but the book is called unbreakable a navy seals way of life 
I wrote it about my experiences in leading SEALs in Afghanistan, and I wrote it specifically for my children. And I didn't know if I was going to come back, so I, I put lessons, 13 lessons in the book that I wanted my kids to be able to learn and do without my guidance. Well, I'm, I'm looking forward to reading it. So um, thanks, uh, thanks again for, for sharing here. Appreciate well, thank it. you, sir. Thank you. It's in there. Get to Old Navy for star-spangled style. Right now, everything's on sale, up to 60% off. That's right, get everything from tees, shorts, dresses, and swim, all at 60% off. Now till July 7th at Old Navy and OldNavy.com. Valid through 7-7, select styles only.